Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This is a view from the bunker. Now, here's Derek Gilbert. There were giants in the earth in those days and also after that. When the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were fair and took wives of any they chose. It's in the Bible. It's weird. And that means it's probably important. Welcome to A View from the Bunker. I'm Derek Gilbert. That last statement was uh, a favorite saying of our good friend, the late Dr. Michael S. Heiser. We use it often because it's very true. Sharon and I have done a lot of research over the last seven years into the cults inspired by the spirits of those giants. And... um, we can document this through texts that are pretty much agreed upon by peer-reviewed secular scholarship. In fact, it is now accepted, and it has been really since the beginning of the 20th century, by secular scholars that Genesis 6 verses 1 through 4 mean exactly what they say. Supernatural entities came down, commingled with human women, and produced monstrous giants that then uh, caused havoc on earth. Now, most of those secular scholars will then say, well, but that's just how the later Israelites explained the megalithic structures they encountered when they moved into the land of Canaan, the dolmens, um, sites like Gilgal, Rephaim, and so forth. Sadly, uh, most Christian seminaries do not accept Genesis 6 verses 1 through 4 as meaning what they say. And that's too bad because it drains the Bible of one of the central conflicts that Jesus came to resolve on earth. This was the subject of Dr. Michael Heiser's book, Reversing Hermon. Well, this month and next month, May and June of 2023, Sharon and I are offering video teachings at a discount, DVDs, and also our streaming video. This is kind of a way to launch our streaming video site as we've recorded a lot of video in the recent, in in recent years. And, uh, We've learned as we've set up our little online store, and thank you, by the way, for being so gracious to uh, uh, to shop there to get our books and DVDs. But uh, shipping stuff around the world can get really expensive, even something as small as a DVD, especially if you're living in a country like England, where you got to pay a value-added tax for something that you buy from the United States. So to uh, encourage you to take a look at our streaming video site, gilberthouse.org slash video, we're offering 20% off in May and June. Promo code VIDEO20, that's VIDEO20, both for DVDs purchased at our store and also streaming video at our streaming video site, gilberthouse.org video. And to show you a little bit of the kind of thing that we make available for streaming, this is also on one of our DVDs, the This Is War DVD. I'm going to share with you a presentation that I gave back in 2019 in um, Sanger, California, as part of the Look He Is Coming with the Clouds Prophecy Conference. I was honored to speak alongside Troy Anderson and Paul McGuire, and um, I gave six talks over the course of the weekend, which is why that uh, This Is War DVD set, which is based on that uh, uh, on that weekend, is a two-DVD set. 
I, I talked six times over the course of a weekend, which just um, provides more evidence for my mother's claim that Derek learned to talk at the age of 18 months and he hasn't stopped. But the purpose of this talk was to illustrate the importance of Bibles, or rather, the importance of giants. Bibles are important too, but giants in the Bible, why do they matter? So giants in the Bible, I had never heard of this until I was about 35 years old and an evangelist started preaching on Genesis chapter 6 and I was intrigued because I like weird stuff. Science fiction fan since I was a kid and thought, wow, I need to know more about this is in the Bible. Well, okay. So I went to the local county library branch in St. Louis. The only book I could find was L.A. Marzulli's novel, Nephilim. So Marzulli is to blame for me being here. But as Dr. Heiser said, if it's in the Bible and it's weird, it's important. So what do these verses say? Genesis 6, verse 1, and I read from the English Standard Version, the ESV, only because it's a good word-for-word translation like the King James, but the language is more modern. So it's easier for us who don't speak Elizabethan English to understand. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters are born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Could mean that that's the limit on our lifespan now. Could mean that that's the amount of time Noah had to build the ark. Scholars still argue about that. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, if the Nephilim were killed in the flood, how is it that there were giants around in the days of David? We'll talk about that. One clue, the word translated when, as in when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, in Hebrew can also be translated as whenever. Whenever. Does that mean that There was another incursion after the flood where angels came in and possibly. I tend to think that when the angels who sinned or the other angels saw what had happened to the angels who sinned, oh, they're in chains in gloomy darkness until the time of the judgment. I don't want that. I think they laid off. But now we see in the modern transhumanist movement where scientists are in the lab combining monkey DNA with human and human-pig hybrids and things like that, that uh, they're inducing us to do it to ourselves. But again, I'm open to changing my mind based on more correction. What was the consequence of this sin? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Well, that's been true since the beginning. What caused the flood? It was worse than that. We see that in the book of First Enoch that it was literally an existential threat to humanity. This was the belief of the Jews of the Second Temple period. Again, that's a period that includes Jesus and the apostles and the early church. Verse 7, so the Lord's, or verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Again, the book of Enoch expounds on this. Also, the book of Jubilees and Yasher will expound on this to extent. Apparently, these angels were not only sinning against humanity by crossing the species barrier, 
They were doing so with the animal kingdom as well. There are some who theorize that this is where the giant reptiles, the dinosaurs, came from. Again, that's only a theory we don't know. But for whatever reason, or whatever, however it happened, God found it so grievous that he put a stop to it, said that's it. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Blameless. The Hebrew word there translated means perfect, uncorrupted. When you look at how that word is used throughout the Old Testament, it refers to an unblemished sacrifice, usually. An animal that is perfect. Blameless in his generation. I think what we're talking about here is his genetic code. Not only was he a righteous man, but he was not a hybrid. He was not a hybrid. I think we're dealing with an attempt by these B'nai Elohim, these watchers. And by the way, that phrase is in the Bible. It's not just in the book of Enoch. You find it in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar has his dream. And the watchers... The holy ones come down and say, you're going to go crazy for seven years. And it was by their decree. So apparently these watchers had some influence, some authority. But some of them rebelled back in Genesis 6 and attempted to destroy what God had created through hybridization, apparently. So the takeaways that I hope you'll get from this talk today, the Bible verses about the creation of these entities, the giants, the Nephilim, mean what they say. Yes, the sons of God were angels. They were not the sons of Seth. Yes, giants were created. And that this conflict, that this incident, is far more important in not just biblical history, but in end times prophecy than we've been taught. I will say again, this is a thread. This isn't just weird. It's important. It weaves its way through the entire gospel all the way to Armageddon. So, some of the objections to this argument and why most pastors are being taught in seminary today. The sons of Seth theory, the sons of God. Benei Elohim doesn't literally mean sons of God. It means the sons of Seth. No. But we are told and I still hear these objections today, but understand that what we're hearing today is the minority view in Christianity today. Most pastors aren't taught this. Most seminaries don't teach this. We are in the minority here in this room today. We're told angels can't reproduce. Jesus, in a confrontation with the Sadducees, said, you are mistaken because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. This is Matthew 22, verses 23 through 33, where he's confronted by the Sadducees. A woman had a husband, he died, then he died. And so whose, husband, whose wife is she in the resurrection? Well, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They were trying to trap Jesus. <laughs> a fool's errand. Anyway... So this is used as an, as, as an objection to the idea that the angels could actually reproduce. They neither marry nor give in marriage. Okay, context. Um, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor give in marriage. Angels of God in heaven. The angels of God in Genesis 6 weren't in heaven. The text doesn't say that angels can't reproduce. It just says that they don't. 
They didn't need to. God created them. They're eternal beings. We are natural, flesh and blood, mortal. Our spirits are eternal. We all live forever. Isn't that cool? How's it feel being an immortal? Amen. I'm just waiting for that incorruptible body because this knee is really beginning to bug me. And besides, how is the virgin birth of God in the flesh any weirder? How is that any less weird than this? Angels are spirit beings. Yes, this is another objection. Angels are spirits. They're not human. They can't interact with us as humans. Oh, well, except that the Bible tells us, first of all, in Genesis 6, that they did. Also, we see other examples of it. Genesis 18, Abraham served a meal to angels, one of whom, by the way, of the three, was the angel of Yahweh, which means God in natural form, where he can be seen. That incident I told you back in Exodus, where the 70 elders of Israel plus Moses, they saw the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. When you see that in the Old Testament, that is essentially a Christophany. That is Jesus in the Old Testament. That is God in the flesh, in a form that we can perceive with our human senses without being destroyed. Angels rescued Lot from the crowd in Sodom. So clearly they had physical interaction with the guys who were trying to drag Lot and the angels outside to abuse them. Angels ministered to Jesus after his temptation in the wilderness. Jesus was in the flesh. The angels appeared to him and ministered to him in the flesh, in physical form. Angels appeared and spoke to Zechariah, father of John the Baptist. Angels busted the apostles out of prison in Acts 5, busted Peter out of prison in Acts 12. Again, interacting in the physical realm. Angels can interact physically. They have physicality. Demons are different. Demons are the spirits of the Nephilim destroyed in the flood. They need physicality, which is why they have to possess a body. That's where possession comes from. They crave that physicality, but they have to possess a human to do it. Another objection. Sons of God means righteous humans, the sons of Seth theory. This is, and it's pointed to the New Testament, skeptics or critics of this, uh, the Genesis 6 paradigm will say, in the New Testament, sons of God refers to righteous humans, the followers of Jesus Christ. And that is true, but the paradigm has shifted by the New Testament. We're talking about sonship and daughtership or inheritance language because of what I said in the last session. Our destiny as followers of Jesus Christ is to be brought back into the family, the prodigal children. We will be co-heirs with Christ. And that's why in the New Testament, Paul writes so often about being sons and daughters of God. But in the Old Testament, every time that phrase is used, B'nai Elohim, sons of God, it always, 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 underline always, refers to spirit beings, angels. It never, never Underline never means humans. Claiming that it means humans ignores Hebrew. It also ignores the cultural context, the spirit, religious context in which the Hebrews lived. Because the cognate phrases, cognate means same word, different language. So the equivalent phrases in other languages spoken by the pagan nations around Israel means exactly the same thing. The equivalent phrase in Ugaritic for B'nai Elohim 
they believed meant the sons of El who lived on Mount Hermon. The equivalent phrase at the ancient kingdom of Emar meant the sons of their chief god Dagon. It always means this. So when somebody claims, well, this doesn't what, it's like, I'm sorry, but that is just ignorant of Hebrew and ignorant of the cultural and religious history that produced the Hebrew Bible. It is wrong. I don't care if it's a majority view. Augustine, in the 5th century AD, Bishop of Hippo, brilliant man, but wrong about this. It's also logically incoherent. Why would the sons of Seth marrying the daughters of Cain produce these evil giants? That makes no sense. It's an attempt to explain away or naturalize what is clearly a supernatural incident. The giants, what, 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 why is this such a big deal? Because they occupied the land that the Hebrews were given by God. When they got to Canaan, they found some pretty scary dudes occupying the Holy Land. The Rephaim tribes who lived east of the Jordan River or the Transjordan. You might remember that incident in Genesis chapter 14 where Lot was carried off with uh, uh, the, the spoils from the city of Sodom by kings who'd come from the east. From Keterleomer of Elam. Elam was Persia, Iran. That's a long way to march. When you're crossing the desert and you're making as soldiers, maybe 10, 15 miles a day at best, you're talking about having to march for a couple of months to get to the area of the Dead Sea. They had to want to go to war with these guys really bad to walk that far to do it. But before they could go to war with the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and their allies, they defeated Rephaim tribes in Ashtaroth and Edrai, or Ashtaroth, which is Bashan, the later kingdom of Og of Bashan, and in areas that were later occupied by the countries of Ammon, Moab, and Edom. If you look at a map, they came down from the north along the King's Highway, east of the Dead Sea, and made a circle around the Dead Sea, and came back up the west side of the Dead Sea before they finally did battle with the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah at the north end of the Dead Sea. They basically were doing a police action. Why? The King's Highway, east of the Dead Sea, was a key trade route from Egypt to Mesopotamia, and apparently the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and their Rephaim allies were taking too big a piece of the action. It was all about trade, money, control. And that's where the Rephaim lived, east of the Jordan River, in the lands later called Bashan, from north to south. Bashan, Ammon, Moab, and Edom. The Anakim, another group of people that the Israelites ran into. According to the Bible, they are counted as Rephaim. This is in Deuteronomy 2, verse 11. In fact, Joshua's war of conquest in Canaan was all about wiping out the Anakim, these Rephaim tribes, or tribes counted as Rephaim. Joshua came from that time, cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Devir, from Anav, and from all the hill country of Judah, from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction, devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. Why is that significant? Because 
Goliath came from Gath, and so did his brothers. Now, interestingly, Jewish religious scholars, here's the origin of the word Nephilim, by the way. Um, scholars think that uh, the word comes from um, a Hebrew term meaning to fall. So Nephilim being the fallen ones. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you could see that that could kind of make sense. But Dr. Michael Heiser, it's not a real presentation unless I mention Mike at least two or three times. Presentation <clears throat> makes a really good case that this is actually a loan word from Aramaic. Based on a loan word from Aramaic. Like we in English will use loan words from other languages. Um, and of course none are coming to mind at the moment. But you know what I'm saying. There are words from French or German that will, that will uh, you know, like savvy or, or whatever, uh, coming from uh, other, other languages. The, the Hebrews did that as well. And there's a word in Aramaic, nafila, nafila, which means giant. So Mike shows convincingly, because he's a scholar, uh, that this word is the likely origin of Nephilim. In Aramaic, the plural suffix is in, in instead of im, im. But a Hebrew scholar would probably have taken it and then Hebrewized it by adding the I-M in place of the I-N. So Nephilim, giants, Nephilim in Hebrew. The uh, Hebrew scholars who translated the Septuagint, which is the Greek Bible that would have been used by the apostles in the first century. This was translated in the third century BC. It was completed a couple of hundred years before the birth of Jesus. The Greek mind had a similar story, the Greek religion had a similar story to what we see in the Bible, where giants had caused a real problem for humanity, and that there was a generation of gods who had been condemned to Tartarus. Now the story was twisted in that uh, it was Zeus and the Olympians who overthrew the Titans and threw them down to Tartarus, instead of the Creator saying to these angels, you have sinned, you're going to be in chains until the judgment. But the pattern is the same. And the Jewish scholars had no problem connecting the Rephaim. And, and let me be very clear. Rephaim was the title given, the name given, to the spirits of the Nephilim. Rephaim equals spirits of Nephilim. And these Jewish scholars had no problem connecting the Rephaim to the titans of Greek mythology. They understood the giants were connected to the titans, the gods who were bound in Tartarus. You see this in 2 Samuel, where the valley, of, the valley of the Rephaim, which is near Jerusalem, in the Greek translation is Valley of the Titans. In Isaiah 14, the word shades in our English Bible, where the shades are roused up to greet the rebel from Eden upon his descent into Shale, the underworld. In the Septuagint, the word in our English Bible, translated shades, which in Hebrew is Rephaim, in the Greek Septuagint is giants. They understood the connection. Giants, Rephaim, Nephilim, Titans. Proverbs 2.18, a word translated in Hebrew, or from Hebrew into English as departed, or the dead. Proverbs 2.18, in Septuagint, it's translated as earthborn, which was a, a title given to the Titans. In Proverbs 21.16, the assembly of the dead. In English, assembly of the Rephaim. In Hebrew, 
translated into the Greek as congregation of the giants. The Jewish scholars in the centuries before Jesus understood the connection between Greek mythology, which was their religion. The word mythology makes it sound like Aesop's fables, like a collection of stories that you tell your kids to make them be good. That was their religion. They sacrificed to these gods, even humans. Recent archaeological discovery in Greece has provided evidence that even Zeus received human sacrifice from time to time. And the Hebrew scholars, the Jewish scholars, when they translated the Bible from Hebrew into Greek, understood the connection. It's there. It's just been kind of whitewashed out of our English Bibles because we've been taught since the time of Augustine that they were just imaginary. No, the sons of God were angelic beings who rebelled against their creator. They were responsible for the flood of Noah. This is expounded on in Genesis 6, even further in the book of Enoch and some of the other extra-biblical uh, Jewish texts from the centuries before the birth of Jesus. The book of Enoch, first Enoch to be, specifically, uh, to be specific, expounds on Genesis 1, expands on it, tells us more about it. I'm quoting now from an English translation done by a scholar of the book of Enoch, taught at the University of Iowa, named George W.E. Nicholsburg. And they conceived for them, these are the women who were taken as wives by the, uh, by the angels. They conceived from them and bore them great giants. And the giants begot Nephilim, and to the Nephilim were born Eliud. That's a word that means gods of glory. I mean, this goes way beyond what's in the Bible. So I'm really careful about, okay, you know, who are these other... We won't even get into that because, again, it's not in the Bible. Point is why this all happened. They were growing in accordance to their greatness. They, the giants, that is, were devouring the labor of all the sons of men, and men were not able to supply them. And the giants began to kill men and to devour them. And they began to sin against the birds and beasts and creeping things and the fish... Again, the sin against the animals, which is why God had to destroy them in the flood as well. And to devour one another's flesh, and they drank the blood. Our friend, Dr. Judd Burton, who's written, he wrote his doctoral dissertation on the Grotto of Pan, Panias, that cave at the base of Mount Hermon, suggests that this is where stories of vampires and werewolves originated. Because this text, the book of First Enoch, would have been familiar to the apostles. Is that me? No. Because it's usually me. I'd like to turn off the phone, but when I do it, I just say hello to the NSA just to make sure that they know that we're listening and happy that they're hearing some truth. <clears throat> but here's the thing. We know that the apostles reference the book of Enoch, even though Enoch is not in the Bible. And there are reasons for it, because there's some stuff in Enoch that you just cannot square with Scripture, cannot be corroborated. But Peter, Peter specifically identified the sin of these transgressing angels that he mentions in 2 Peter 2, 4, as sexual. 2 Peter 2, beginning in verse 4. If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. The word in English translated, or the word translated into English as hell is the Greek word tartarau. Tartarau. It's the only place in the Bible it's used, which means it's weird, which means it's important. Tartarus was not Hades. 
Peter knew this, and he was writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, remember? So pretty sure Peter got this right. Hades was where the dead went. Tartarus was a separate level as far below Hades as the earth was below heaven in the Greek mind. Peter chose that word specifically because that's the abyss. It was reserved for, the, for, for supernatural threats to the divine order of things. Angels who threatened to destroy all of creation. And Peter says Tartarus is real and that's where these angels were. And furthermore, so that we know that he's talking about the angels of Genesis 6. He links them to Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 6, 2 Peter 2, 6. And then in verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. The lust of defiling passion, crossing the species barrier, as abhorrent to God as humans. Well, you can read in the book of Leviticus some of the acts that God prohibited that you don't want to read out loud with your children in the room. Likewise, Jude, in his short letter, Jude 6 and 7, the angels who do not stay within their own position of authority, the King James, kept not their first estate, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise engaged indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. That eternal fire also described in the book of Enoch, by the way. The point, Jude and Peter both connect the angels and their sexual sin, crossing the species barrier, which they only could have known from the book of Enoch, with what happened in Genesis 6. I mentioned the watchers in the Bible. You find those in Daniel chapter 4. But the Mesopotamians, the older Mesopotamians, knew about these entities as well. They were called Apkalu. A-P-K-A-L-L-U. Apkalu. They were servants of the god Enki. Remember him? Lord of the abyss? According to Mesopotamian religion, the Apkalu were demigods, half human, half god, sent forth with the gifts of civilization to humanity. Sort of like the Greek myth of Prometheus, who brought fire to humanity and got punished for it. It's another retelling of that same story. The Apkalu went forth with the gifts of civilization. Everything from showing hospitality to travelers to how to make beer. Everything was in there. In these, the, they were called the Mez. The keys of civilization. The Mez. But then in the Babylonian creation myth, called the Enuma Elish, the chief god Marduk said, I sent the craftsmen, banished them to the Apsu. He banished the Apkalu, the Watchers, the Titans, to the Apsu, the Abyss, and told them never to return. Again, another MSNBC version of the story. <laughs> Twisting the Bible story to explain what had happened. And what happened to the Watchers again? down to Tartarus, Tartarau. They are the prisoners of 1 Peter 3, who connected the practice of baptism to the punishment of the watchers. Get this, in 1 Peter 3, beginning at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, 
in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. The flood was sent to wipe out the watchers and the Nephilim. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And then he mentions baptism, which corresponds to this. It's not about, it's not a salvation issue. If you're not baptized, you're still saved. Why do we baptize? He ties it to Jesus proclaiming to the spirits in prison. Hey, bet you didn't expect to see me here. But here's a newsflash. Dawn of the third day, I get out, you're still dead. When we baptize, it's another declaration of victory over those rebel angels who sinned. Hey, we got another one. That's what baptism is about. One of the high points of our Israel trip last year was when Mike Heiser gave us that teaching just as we were getting ready to go into the Jordan River. And we got to baptize people in the Jordan River. That's one for the, you know, the, the memory album up here because the first time I'd ever baptized anybody in the Jordan River. Mm. You realize that that's why we're doing it. So what happened to the Nephilim giants? Their spirits became demons. This was, again, explained in the book of First Enoch. First Enoch 15, beginning at verse 8. But now the giants who were begotten by the spirits in flesh, they will call them evil spirits on the earth, for their dwelling will be on the earth. And the spirits of the giants lead astray, do violence, make desolate, and attack, and wrestle, and hurl upon the earth, and cause illnesses. They eat nothing, but abstain from food, and are thirsty and smite. These spirits will rise up against the sons of men and against the women, for they have come forth from them. From the day of the slaughter and destruction and death of the giants, from the soul of whose flesh the spirits are proceeding, they are making desolate without incurring judgment. Thus they will make desolate until the day of the consummation of the great judgment. That's the day of the Lord, Armageddon, when the great age will be consummated. This was the belief of the Jews of the time of Jesus, the apostles. It was also the belief of the early church. This was what the early church fathers believed about the origin of demons. For example, Origen, one of the early church fathers, not right about everything, but about this, he writes, in my opinion, it is certain wicked demons, and so to speak, of the race of titans or giants who have been guilty of impiety towards the true God and towards the angels in heaven who have fallen from it and who haunt the denser parts of bodies and frequent unclean places upon the earth, etc., etc. Justin Martyr, likewise. Irenaeus, likewise. Understood the origin of demons, the spirits of the Nephilim destroyed in the flood. If Jesus was casting out demons, he was casting out the spirits of the Nephilim. Hercules, by definition, part Zeus, part human, one of the Nephilim. Imagine Apostle Paul going head to head with Hercules. Could have happened. Don't know. Love to see somebody write a story about that. Maybe I can get Sharon on that. <laughs> but here's the thing, the Greeks, the pagan Greeks understood that this was also the origin of demons. Hesiod, the poet Hesiod, who wrote about the time of Isaiah, from whom we know much of what we know 
about Greek religion, what we call mythology, wrote this. After the earth had covered this generation, this is the generation of men who lived during the golden age when Kronos, king of the Titans, ruled in heaven, they are called pure spirits, daemons, dwelling on the earth and are kindly, delivering from harm and guardians of mortal men, for they roam everywhere over the earth clothed in mist. Oh, that sounds lovely. Wrong! Why does this matter? Because the Watchers brought more to the earth than just the spirits of these Nephilim. They brought forbidden knowledge, things we weren't supposed to know. Dr. Heiser's book, Reverse, uh, Reversing Hermont, is all about this. They brought us the knowledge of witchcraft, sorcery, divining the future. They even brought the uh, concept of cosmetics, ladies. It's all on how you use them, okay? It's, that's, that's, the, that's the deal. I know there, there are some, actually there have been some sects of Christianity throughout history who said, no, you can't, you can't wear cosmetics because that's sinful. It's, it's all in what you do with it. Making weapons and waging war. These were things we weren't supposed to know, that the Watchers, according to Enoch, brought to humanity. This is what would have been in the mind of the apostles and the prophets when you asked them, why is the world in a mess? The fall in Eden... The sin of the Watchers on Mount Hermon. It wasn't just creating the Nephilim, it was bringing us all this forbidden knowledge. In fact, Babylon, Babylon thought that Babylon was great because they had preserved knowledge from before the flood. The Epic of Gilgamesh is about Gilgamesh retrieving, partly anyway, knowledge from before the flood and bringing it back. Make Babylon great again. Well, that's how they did it, through witchcraft, sorcery, things we weren't supposed to know that had been brought to humanity by the Watchers. The Nephilim and their spirits afterward inspired the cult worship of the ancestors. Ancestors. This is a practice that continues to this day in places as different as Madagascar, where the ancestors are brought out of the tombs, rewrapped every few years, and they're danced with them. It's like planking with a corpse. but also in Southeast Asia. The Vietnamese, story just a couple of weeks ago, a young girl, beaten by villagers because her parents and she had accepted Jesus Christ, no longer worshiping the ancestors. Young girl beaten almost to death. The Roman Catholic Church in South Korea back in the 1930s had to issue a special dispensation to allow the Koreans to continue venerating their ancestors because they just wouldn't stop. This continues to this day. This was a practice that was part of the foundational worldview of the neighbors of ancient Israel, the Canaanites, the Amorites. Every month on the 30th of the month, you had to call the damned ancestors through a necromancy ritual called kispum. And you fed the ancestors. You remember in the Bible the reference to the teraphim, the household gods of Jacob's father-in-law, Laban? These teraphim represented the ancestors. And every month on the 30th of the month, the night of no moon, when the veil between the worlds was thinnest, they would take bread and they would smear it on the statue to feed it. And they would pour out the drink offering. In fact, this was so important that the heir of the family, usually the oldest son, was called the pourer of water. This was a big deal. That's why Abraham was so stressed about not having an heir. 
Because if I don't have an heir to perform the monthly ritual, I'm going to have to eat dust and clay forever. And you had to perform that ritual faithfully, or great-grandpa would come back and would make you miserable, make your life a living hell. You wouldn't like dead great-grandpa when he's angry. <laughs> and this was part of their worldview, the Amorites, venerating the dead. Again, there are some scholars who believe that the whole point of the pagans who raised swine, pigs, was to offer them up as sacrifices to the dead. And this practice was brought to Israel by the spirits of the Nephilim. But for the kings of the Amorites and the Canaanites, it was even more important. They had to do it twice a month, on the 15th and the 30th, because if dead great-grandpa could make your life miserable, dead King Og, or whoever, could make you really miserable. He could affect the whole kingdom. And they had special places, gardens, royal gardens, near the palace, where the dead kings of old were worshipped. The dead kings of old, the, the mighty men who were of old, the Rephaim. The Canaanites, the Amorites who lived around ancient Israel, they knew who the Rephaim were. Moses did not invent them to fill space in the book of Deuteronomy. This was a real thing that influenced Israel for hundreds of years. We see it condemned in Isaiah, and Ezekiel prophesies their return. Because I'm running short of time, I will have to condense a lot of this. But a lot of this is going to be in the forthcoming book that Sharon and I have coming out called Veneration, about how they were venerated, why they were venerated, where they were venerated. The idea of the garden was corrupted because of this. The original garden, Eden, like that parable of the, uh, the wicked tenants, where the landowner creates a garden and he protects it with a wall around it. But by the time of the Amorites, in the days of Isaiah and Ezekiel, it had become a place for cult worship of human kings who were dead. A walled garden. In fact, the word in Hebrew, gan, scholars say, is equivalent to a word from ancient Persian, paradisa. What does that sound like? Paradise. That's the idea. And it was corrupted by these spirits. It's like, well, God's got a garden? All right, we'll tell people how they should worship in gardens. Here, sacrifice some pigs, hang out among the tombs, and worship our spirits. Oh, yeah, totally. I'm your, totally your king from whatever. Yeah, yeah, that one. They lie! And they got the Israelites to buy into it. You see this in Isaiah. In fact, we see it even further back than that. Uh, when Israel, before they had even crossed the Jordan River, in the plains of Moab, when they lived in Shittim, they began to whore after the daughters of Moab. You remember this story where Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron, saw that a priest, or a, rather a, a, a prince of Israel, had come back to the people with a daughter of Midian, a princess, and they were engaged in some activity. Phineas, filled with zeal, took a spear and ran them through. Without getting too graphic, there are only a couple of physical positions they could have been in for Phineas to get them both with one thrust, if you catch my drift. But who was Baal Peor? This was the god that they were worshiping. I show in the book, Last Clash of the Titans, Peor is based on a Hebrew word, a root, that means cleft or opening or gap. 
in this context, opening to the underworld. They were worshiping the Lord of the opening to the netherworld. And God was so distressed about this that he sent a plague that killed 24,000 Israelites. What's interesting is when you read Psalm 106, verses 28 and 29, the psalmist who was writing 400 years after this event on the plains of Moab didn't even mention what the prince of Israel and the princess of Midian were doing. I mean, for us, that's shocking. They're engaged in a fertility act in the sight of Moses and all Israel. No wonder Phineas ran him through. That wasn't the sin. Psalm 106, verse 28. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds and a plague broke out among them. That was the sin. Inspired by these spirits, the demons who proceeded from the bodies of the Nephilim. Isaiah 57. Among the smooth stones of the dead... Smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Isaiah 57, verse 6. What's he talking about there? The word translated smooth stones, scholars say, can also be translated as dead. Among the dead of the valley is your portion. Valleys were often used as places where the dead were buried. You can see this when you visit Jerusalem. The valley of the sons of Hinnom, Gehenna. There's a street that runs down there now, and you can see the tombs on the walls along the sides of the valley. When we visited En Gedi, where David hid from Saul, you can look up on the walls of the cliffs alongside the valley. Oh, tomb, 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 tomb. They're all over. Isaiah was condemning those who went to hang out amongst the tombs, eating sacrifices and pouring out drink offerings. For the dead. Isaiah 57, verse 9. You have journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol, the underworld. But the word translated king in ancient Hebrew. Now remember, Hebrew is a consonantal language. No vowels. Vanna White wasn't there to provide vowels for them. And so we have to assume that we know what the vowels were. Melech means king. You travel to Melech. But it could also be malach, which is the word for messenger angel. Doesn't really fit the context. But there's another word that can fit here, especially when you're talking about sending down to the underworld. You journeyed to Molech with oil and sent down even to Sheol. Isaiah 65, verses 3 and 4. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens, the royal garden mortuary cult for the dead kings of old, making offerings on bricks who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. Why is Isaiah going on about this? Because this was a thing in his day. When you read the accounts of the kings who lived in Isaiah's day, Hezekiah, Hezekiah's son, the evil king Manasseh, Manasseh's son, Amon. Manasseh and Amon are the only two kings in the Old Testament recorded as being buried in a garden. In a garden, not in the tombs of their fathers in the city of David, like all of the kings from Hezekiah going for back. Manasseh and Amon buried in the garden of Uzzah. Why is that relevant? Because they apparently had gone native and aspired to join the assembly of the Rephaim after death. So, 
what role do these guys play in the end times? And I'm going to speed up here because I don't want to cut into Paul's time. In Ezekiel 39, 39 verse 11, Ezekiel prophesies the end. Yeah, see, I used a weird font in my version of this presentation, which is why it overlapped here. <laughs> Shouldn't use the custom font and then transfer it to someone else's computer. Anyway, Ezekiel said the war of Gog and Magog will end when God prepares a place for burial in the valley of the travelers east of the sea for the hordes of Magog. The valley of the travelers east of the sea. That's east of the Dead Sea. And it will block the travelers. Who are the travelers? The Ugaritic Rephaim texts tell us. The Rephaim spirits who were summoned through necromancy rituals to sacrificial meals in the tabernacle or the threshing floor of El on Mount Hermon. And by the way, these texts describe them as chariot warriors who mount their chariots. They travel first one day and then another, and they arrive at the tabernacle of El at dawn of the third day. Audience participation. Coincidence? No! They are the travelers, the spirits of the Nephilim destroyed in the flood, described specifically as travelers in the sense that they travel or cross over from the land of the dead to the land of the living. This text, KTU 1.22, what scholars call it, one of the Rephaim texts, only translated within the last 40 years. The great theologians of years gone by didn't have access to this. It's only now in this generation that we've got this in the context, the religious context, which the prophets would have known. Writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, remember, helps us to understand, oh, the travelers. Okay, now I get that. It will block the travelers. What does that mean? Well, here's where things get a little weird. Er. The watchers in the pit. They get out for one last shot at humanity. Revelation 9, you know, the abyss is opened. An angel fallen from heaven, star fallen from heaven, with a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, opens the shaft, and from the shaft rise these things that look like locusts. You've seen some prophecy scholars describe them as attack helicopters. Okay, that's a naturalistic view. I can understand that. But the watchers, the apkalu of the Mesopotamians, the apkalu of the Mesopotamians were always described as scholarly word, theriomorphic, hybrid angel, hybrid human and animal, a guy with wings, a guy with the head of a bird and wings, or a guy wearing a, like, like a fish cloak. These things coming out of the pit are theriomorphic. I think we're talking about the same things here. These are the watchers of Genesis 6, and here's why I think so. In verse 5, Revelation 9, verse 5, they were allowed to torment them for five months. People without the seal of God in their foreheads. Torment them for five months. Let's flip back to Genesis 6, the flood. How long did it take the floodwaters to recede? 150 days. Remember, the Hebrew calendar is a 30-day month. Divide 150 by 30. Five months. Five months, these watchers were in the abyss, chained in gloomy darkness, while their children, the Nephilim, were being destroyed by the waters of Noah's flood. And at the end, they will have exactly the same amount of time 
to take revenge on the children of man, those who have not accepted Jesus Christ. This is not a coincidence. This is another reversal of the evil that the watchers brought to humanity and to the world. But here's the thing. Their deaths have been decreed. Isaiah 14, prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. Wait, I'm from Chicago. What's wrong with cities? Besides the Cubs who are really stinking it up this week. What's wrong with city? The key here is understanding that the word for city in Hebrew, ir, I-Y-R, transliterated into English, is identical to the Aramaic word for watchers. In this context, watchers makes more sense. Now, do we have an example of Aramaic words coming into Hebrew and being used in a Hebrew con- Yes, we do. Nephilah, giants, Nephilim. Isaiah 14, 21, I believe, is a prophecy of the destruction of the watchers at the end of time. We see it again in Numbers 24, verse 17 and 19. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Scholars agree this is a messianic prophecy. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the watchers, lest they rise and possess the earth. I've got more here, but I don't want to cut further into Paul's time. I will say Isaiah 26 has got some really fascinating stuff. 26, 14, and 19 also prophesies the death of the resurrection, or the death of the watchers. But this is all about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. This chapter, like Isaiah 14, is one of the most incredible in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, it starts out with a summary of the gospel by which we are saved. Verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Then verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And then we skip to verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But the travelers, the Rephaim spirits who have plagued mankind since the flood, they will be blocked. Like Jesus proclaiming to the spirits, I'm getting out of here, but you're still dead. Thank you. Again, that presentation is one of six available on our two-DVD set, This Is War. It's also available to stream instantly from our streaming video site, gilberthouse.org slash video. And uh, whether you 
go for DVDs or streaming video during the months of May and June. We're offering 20% off with promo code VIDEO20. VIDEO20 takes 20% off when you check out. Coming up, we're going to tell you about a couple of upcoming events. Um, some news about our planned tour of Turkey and uh, this week's edition of Bless Their Pointy Little Heads. Straight ahead on A View from the Bunker. We've recorded a lot of video over the last eight years and we're truly thankful that so many of you have been blessed by our teachings, presentations, our, our travel documentaries of our tours through Israel. But sending videos to other parts of the world can get expensive. So we've now made all of our video content available on demand. Stream our video in full HD with instant access at gilberthouse.org video. And during the months of May and June, you can save 20% with promo code video20 at checkout, that's video two zero. Video on demand for as little as $3 for seven days access and 20% off with promo code video two zero. But if you prefer DVDs, that promo code works for you too. Log on to gilberthouse.org slash store, use video 20 at checkout and save 20% on all DVDs. 20% off all streaming video and DVDs with promo code video two zero at gilberthouse.org. Driving the internet to think every Sunday night from the beautiful Missouri Ozarks. This is A View from the Bunker. I'm Derek Gilbert. You'll find us online at vftb.net. You'll also find us at uh, social media at View from Bunker. That's on Twitter, of course, or at Derek Gilbert. Facebook View from the Bunker and the new social media sites Truth Social, Gab, MeWe, uh, getter. I was almost going to say Parlor, but Parlor is no longer with us. Uh, but anyway, you'll find me on the other sites at Derek P. Gilbert. And um, of course, uh, the website vftb.net, sort of our global hub. Gilberthouse.org for everything that Sharon and I do. But most importantly, get our free app. Our free app is available for iOS, Android, and Amazon Kindle Fire phones and tablets. We also have versions available for uh, for Roku and Apple TV, if you want to throw all of our content up on your big screen. The advantage of the mobile app is that it also has a calendar of upcoming events, our schedule of Bible readings for our weekly Gilbert House Fellowship Bible Study. All of our content, of course, besides this podcast, you will also get uh, the Bible Study, um, our weekly Unraveling Revelation broadcast, PID Radio, the podcast that began it all in 2005. It is still going in 2023. All of those... Um, Recent programs, the archives, we are uploading those as time allows, uh, so you can see some of the classic PID radios, or hear them anyway, since they are audio only. Uh, some of the old View from the Bunker programs as well, going back to 2009, also on the app, the app available at vftb.net. Look for the link in the top menu bar, or go to gilberthouse.org slash app and download the, uh, the version that is right for your device. Well, um, the White House, good news is uh, doing damage control. We, we've seen over the last six months a surge of news items regarding the threat posed by artificial intelligence. We've heard of chat, GPT, open AI, which sort of launched all of this. Microsoft has just rolled out uh, as of this recording this week, announcing its new AI-powered Bing, the search engine that Microsoft has been trying to com use to compete with, with Google for years without success. Google has also got its own version of AI-powered search that it is uh, beta testing. But um, we are now seeing a, uh, a number of experts in this field 
who are saying, whoa, whoa, we need to pump the brakes here, including a gentleman named Jeffrey Hinton, who worked with Google for years. He is, in fact, called the godfather of AI. He was one of the developers of the original technology, um, the neural networks that are used to power the algorithms that run artificial intelligence, saying that, you know, this is really getting out of control. The power of these these, uh, AIs is something we're going to need to rein in before we create one so powerful that it poses an existential threat to humanity. And there are those who do believe that it is already an existential threat to human existence. Elon Musk very famously quoted as saying, building artificial intelligence is literally summoning the demon. And as we've said previously and in other uh, fora, yeah, uh, he may be more right than he thinks. So what is the White House doing about it? Well, the White House has now formed a new office to deal with the threat or the potential threat posed by artificial intelligence. And (laughs) I almost said something really snarky there. Um, Our Vice President Kamala Harris has been put in charge of this mission. Yes, Vice President Harris, who has the lowest approval rating of any vice president in American history, will lead the containment effort as the AI czar for the Biden administration. Her office, given a budget of just $140 million to do this. For comparison, according to the Daily Mail, the uh, Space Force, the newest branch of the U.S. military, has a budget, an annual budget of $30 billion. That's billion with a B. Compared to 140 million, the way our government does things, that might not be enough to get business cards and stationery printed for this new office. Harris met, she's right on the job. She's already met with executives from Google, Microsoft, and OpenAI. That took place this past Thursday to discuss how to reduce the risk of artificial intelligence. And uh, in a statement, she said, quote, As I shared today with CEOs of companies at the forefront of American AI innovation, the private sector has an ethical, moral, and legal responsibility to ensure the safety and security of their products. And every company must comply with existing laws to protect the American people. I look forward to the follow-through and follow-up in the weeks to come. End quote. Well, <laughs> um, Let us hope for the good of all people worldwide that Vice President Harris will pursue this with more energy and, um, uh, shall we say, intelligence than uh, her previous stint as a czar. That, of course, was overseeing the border crisis, which, uh, as of this recording, is still not under control. Um, My only thought is perhaps the White House is thinking that we can hopelessly ensnarl artificial intelligence by sucking it into a word salad of Vice President Harris's construction, thereby entangling it hopelessly and rendering it powerless to do mischief against the human race. That is indeed our prayer. And we say to Vice President Harris, Bless your pointy little head. Well, um, (laughs) seriously, the threat of artificial intelligence is not really funny 
but it uh, has not gone unnoticed by the media that this was something that was farmed out to Kamala Harris. I understand there's a lot of tension between her and uh, the team around Joe Biden inside the White House. Politics at the national level in the U.S. or anywhere around the world is a blood sport. Contrary to when I was a little kid and, you know, we were taught that anyone can grow up to be president of the United States. Wouldn't that be an honorable thing to be the most, um, the, the, the greatest honor that any child in America could, could aspire to? Now I'm older and wiser. I do not want that job. I do not want to do the things I would have to do to get that job. No. So anyway, um, I do not begrudge the position into which Vice President Harris has been put. It seems to me that the Biden team gives her the thankless jobs because they want her to take the blame for it. But it's the job that she wanted. She is, if nothing else, ambitious. So be careful what you ask for because you might you know, what you wish for, because you may just get it. Well, Skywatch TV's virtual conference, One World Rising, is on right now, which means when you sign up, you get instant access for 90 days. My presentation is on the World Economic Forum's Great Reset Initiative and why its motto should have been Build Back Babel instead of Build Back Better. Build Back Babel. But Tom Horn's presentation, of course, another jaw-dropping um, mini-documentary. Josh Peck does such a wonderful job of putting together Tom's delivery with b-roll to really really make the message sink home so uh, don't miss that carl gallops rabbi zev Porat, ryan peterson colonel david giamona dr mike spaulding dr egal german vicky joy anderson kenny c many more you can get uh, again instant access for 90 days and skywatch tv is throwing in as a bonus all six skywatch films documentaries when you sign up you get access for 90 days you essentially because it's a virtual conference you set the conference schedule Watch what you want to watch in the order you want to watch it. You can pause, rewind, bring friends over, have a mini conference at your house. Skywatch TV's virtual conference, One World Rising, instant access right now at DefenderConference.com. That's DefenderConference.com. We're just one month away from visiting our friends at His Call Ministries, Ginny and Alec Wade over in Sparta, Missouri. That's just south of Springfield. And we're inviting you to join us there for this weekend. It's um, at Finley River Ranch. That's their dwelling place where the uh, Midwest Regional Apostolic Center is under construction, or what they're calling uh, the Glory Barn. This will be a wonderful facility for holding teaching weekends. Um, This will be in their home. I don't think the barn is complete yet. At least I've not heard that it is. So uh, maybe room for 100 people. So if you're interested in hearing from Sharon and me, Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday morning, June 9, 10, and 11 of 2023, join us at His Call Ministries in Sparta, Missouri. We'll be sharing with you the research we did on our recent expedition to Israel. Why we believe we've located the actual historic location of the baptismal site of Jesus, and it's not where anybody thinks it is. Also, the actual physical location of the valley of the shadow of death. Not just a figure of speech. HisCallMinistries.com is the website to get more information. HisCallMinistries.com In July, we'll be at the Go Therefore conference. Um, Dr. Mike Spaulding is putting that on. And once again this week, I have neglected to Um, bring up the list of speakers prior to uh, hitting the record button here. So I am uh, 
basically tap dancing for time while I do that. There we go. Uh, because this is a great lineup. I don't want to leave anybody out. Dr. Michael Lake, L.A. Marzulli, Pastor Casper McLeod, Coach Dave Daubenmeyer, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, David Hevner, Tom Dunn, Dr. Gregory Reed, Kenny C., Randy Conway, Vicki Joy Anderson, David Paxton, Nathan Branham. That is the complete list of speakers. Of course, Dr. Mike Spaulding and uh, Pastor Neil Peterson, who's um, Harvest Revival Center in Brookline, Ohio, just outside Dayton is the setting for this. This is July 28th through 30th of 2023, the Go Therefore Conference. Um, This one will probably sell out, so don't wait. Get on this uh, early. Sharon and I also going to be sharing this information about uh, the research we just did in Israel with uh, drone footage, courtesy of Aaron Lipkin and more. So um, yeah, we look forward to this. This is going to be a real blessed week and some real spiritual warriors there, including Dr. Greg Reed, Vicki Joy Anderson, Tom Dunn, uh, David Hebner. Th- yeah, this is going to be some really great stuff. Go thereforeconference.com. Go thereforeconference.com. Our next Israel tour is set for next spring, March 31st through April 9th, 2024, with an optional three day extension to Jordan. Timothy Alberino is our special guest. So join us for this. This is going to, be- as you will see when we finally get this year's tour video out, we don't go to the usual places. Gilgal Rephaim, the Serpent Mound of Bashan, a couple places that uh, uh, we did not go this year, which we plan to include next year, including the Shamir Dolmen. This is a dolmen with a 50-ton capstone, and the first dolmen found in Israel with petroglyphs on the inside. We found that it is, in fact, accessible to tour buses, so we're planning to include that on the tour next year. But uh, having Tim Alberino with us, this will be another adventure. So join us if you want more information online gilberthouse.org slash travel gilberthouse.org slash travel and we are looking towards going directly from israel to turkey the tour of turkey that we had planned for this october we are pushing off to next spring now to allow a little more time for turkey to rebuild and of course our special guest dr aaron judkins and dr judd burton joining us in turkey we're still firming up details but keep your eyes on our website gilberthouse.org slash travel for details for details uh, of that uh, that tour. Meanwhile, if you get a spare moment, we'd appreciate you uh, leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, uh, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Speaker Stitcher, wherever fine podcasts are sold. And thank you for taking time out of your schedule to listen. Uh, again, May and June, video 2-0, 20% off on all of our videos at our store and our streaming video site. And thank you again for your prayers and your support. We truly appreciate it. Our announcer is DC Good and a production, uh, a view from the bunker that is, is a production of Gilbert House Ministries released under Creative Commons Attribution, not commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 international license. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. I'm Derek Gilbert, and this is a view from the bunker. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.